0: Hello? <laughs> it's like a, a fox snatching a rabbit all over in a matter of seconds. The man in the car would have passed the two girls and then should have passed in that nettie. I drove all over the place looking for I'm not exactly proud of the way I feel towards young girls, but there's other part that says, you like it, go on. Afternoon. we had to shout for girl gone missing. There was nothing to go on at the time because you know was just was a girl gone missing and the only the only possible witnesses were the two girls who had been with her in the laneway. The
1: voice you've been listening to is Mike Walsh. Mike is a retired detective superintendent with Devon and Cornwall Police and is, to my knowledge, the last surviving senior detective associated with the original Jeanette Tate investigation. I met Mike in a busy hotel lobby in Exeter to discuss his memories of the case. His recollections provide a fascinating insight into the police operation and those individuals at the forefront of the investigation. He tells me that the man given command of the missing person emergency was Detective Superintendent Eric Rundle, the second most senior detective in Devon and Cornwall, below Detective Chief Superintendent Proven Sharp. In the first podcast, we established what Jeanette was doing in the hours leading up to her disappearance on Saturday, August 19th, 1978, we know she had been working that week as the relief paper girl in Aylesbury, standing in for the regular delivery boy. Let's recap the timeline. Sometime after 2pm, she left her home in Barton Farm Cottage and cycled to collect the newspapers just over a mile away outside the White Horse Inn on the main Exeter to Sidmouth Road. At about 3.15pm, she met by chance two of her school friends, Margaret Heavey and Tracy Pratt, on a bridge over a brook in Withan Lane. After a short chat, she got back on her bike and cycled ahead. 3.35pm, Margaret and Tracy found Jeanette's bike on its side in the road. Newspapers, minus the 14 she had delivered, scattered on the ground. 3.50pm, The village is alerted to the emergency. Margaret has ridden the bike back into Aylesbury. Soon after that, Jeanette's father, John Tate, returned home from a trip to Exeter and was made aware that his only daughter was missing. He and his wife, Violet, informed the local policeman and a major incident was declared that very evening. In this second episode, I want to focus on the police investigation to find Jeanette. In particular, how the initial emergency search developed into something of a mystery scenario because it was very quickly recognised that this was no ordinary missing person search. With no witnesses to her disappearance, there was no way of knowing where Jeanette had gone, why or who, if anybody had taken her. It would take dozens of detectives Examining witness statements and a mass public appeal for information before police settled on a dominant line of inquiry and a suspect of sorts began to emerge. What is clear looking back is that the initial police response was swift and involved a huge deployment of resources. By Saturday evening, a large scale police hunt for the missing girl involving dozens of officers, sniffer dogs, and a force helicopter. Had been activated in Aylesbury. The investigation would, in time, become the largest ever mounted by Devon and Cornwall police. Because it was clear to Proven Sharp, to Eric Rundle, Mike Walsh, and the others that the first few hours would be crucial if Jeanette was to be found alive. By the time police arrived in Aylesbury that Saturday evening, the clock was already ticking.
2: Search of the area involving largely uniformed officers searching uh, around the
1: site where the bicycle had been found. Roger Busby was the press officer for Devon and Cornwall Police at the time Jeanette went missing. I met Roger at his home in Devon to discuss his recollections of the police investigation, as well as fulfilling his role in handling the media. Roger had access to the people at the very top of the investigation. A former journalist himself, he had an insider's access to the emergency unfolding and a reporter's eye for the drama of the scene.
2: Although it was a straightforward missing person at the outset, there was very little to go on. And of course, one of the the golden hours with an investigation of this kind were the early hours. If you could get a lead within the first 24 hours, then obviously the inquiry had a direction in which to proceed. If you couldn't get that within that golden period, then the thing tended to become bogged down if you were awfully careful.
1: As in any missing person case, the family were questioned by detectives about what they thought had happened to her. John Tate had a cast-iron alibi. John and Violet Tate were in Exeter.
2: They'd gone there to um, collect... uh, It was a commemorative plate or dish which they'd ordered for... Uh, his employer, and that was at um, one of the big stores in Exeter. So they um, they collected it from there and the staff there remembered them. Tanya had gone that day, she caught the bus to go down to Cornwall, so she was out of the village at the time. So all, all Jeanette's family were in fact out of the village.
1: The disappearance of Jeanette had created a storm of activity... But it was clear all efforts to find her faced major problems, a lack of witnesses being the most serious. Detectives faced three possibilities. The first was that there had been an accident. Jeanette's bike was on the road, but there was no sign of damage or any other evidence of a collision at the scene. Two, she had absconded. Again, detectives had no evidence Jeanette had run away. Three, abduction. This seemed the most likely, but nobody had seen Jeanette abducted. Nobody had heard her shouts for help. There was a bike in the road, and the account of Tracy and Maggie. But initially, it seemed little else. Here is Roger again
0: to explain. The team together are given certain tasks. Uh, no one person goes. Out Murder. It's not like on television, uh, there's a team, and I don't know what the strength of the team was at the time, but, I'd say, the whole lot was a lot of a lot of, of detectives involved. Because they drafted in, obviously, officers from all over the force area, from Cornwall, from Plymouth and from North Devon. The investigation force
1: was divided into teams. For example, one such team carried out house-to-house inquiries. If you were living in the vicinity of Aylesbury back in 1978, an officer would knock on your door and you'd be asked to fill out a form confirming your name and explain what your movements were on the day Jeanette went missing. Those forms would be taken back to the incident room to be checked for any nuggets of information by the statement readers and collators. Other teams would focus on the search for Jeanette radiating out from the epicentre in Withan Lane and gradually spreading, like concentric circles on a map, into the lanes and countryside of East Devon. Mike's role was to take charge of the suspect team. With around ten officers under his command, his job was to identify suspects as they came into the frame.
0: Suspects would have come from, I mean, on a like that, you look at, you got nothing to go on. And obviously, you look at people involved with a similar sort of crime. Not, not exactly a, a, a murder, or a kid, but people involved with um, indecency offences or. or like so, attack. people who come attack. to the police's attention before. That's right. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's how, the, that's how the, suspect, the suspects would have been made up.
1: I asked Mike about those who were under police suspicion. He tells me that there was no individual who stood out above the others. It is enough to say that those with criminal records living in the Exeter and East Devon area, particularly child sex offenders, were top of the suspect list. If they were on the police radar in 1978, they were visited and questioned by a member of Mike's team. If suspects came in,
0: the job would have been to track them down and if necessary go and interview certain ones the big disappointment thing was that before the job was reported, before the thing got reported at all to any police the girls had moved the bicycle from the lane so in other words the, uh, the actual scene had been tampered with I mean not only they'd moved the bike they'd, they'd, they'd gone into the field to sure. Uh, over the gate, they got over the gate, the church, and all that sort of thing, you know. Which is only natural, you know, it's only really natural for them to do it, you know, because they found the bike and, oh, you know, Jeanette, Jeanette, where they called out and, and went in and looked over the gate. And you know, it may have been a drawback the fact that the scene was tampered before the job ever got reported.
1: Then a breakthrough. Mrs Matilda Rogers, a policeman's wife and her 14-year-old daughter Gail from Hull were on holiday in Aylesbury and arrived at the incident room, the village hall, on the day after Jeanette's disappearance after seeing the TV news bulletins. They said they were in Withan Lane at the time, saw the two girls, Tracy Pratt and Margaret Heavey and stopped to talk to them asking if there were any events in the area they could visit. They left the girls and walked on in the direction of the White Horse Inn. What they told police developed into a theory which would become synonymous with the investigation for decades to come. It is not the only theory about what happened to Jeanette and there are many who hold different views about what happened to her, but no story of the investigation Is complete without its telling. For now, it is enough to say that at the time, and for years to come, police considered it their main line of inquiry. If we are to give it a name, we can sum it up as the man in the maroon car.
0: She and her daughter were staying on holiday in a bungalow in. On that day, she came forward to say that she'd been walking with her daughter near the bridge. She was walking back from the village, back from Aylesbury. Her bungalow is over here. The last sighting of the girl, of Jeanette, was at a bridge, a little river bridge. And that's where... The two girls last saw Jeanette. She came along and they had a chat. When, when Jeanette moved away on the bicycle to go in that direction, the two girls obviously carried on. And they'd, they'd taken a paper from her. They'd taken a express necklace. So they were reading the paper. The only other people in that lane at that time that we ever found, we had, there was cars in that scene, was this Mrs. Rogers and the daughter. They were walking up back to their bungalow, and they were walking. They were walking up here, just long, not very far from the bridge, only about a couple hundred yards from the bridge. And they were walking up around these little, in this little narrow lane. They said that they met a car. The car, they said, was coming this way, being driven towards the elder. They, in their statements, they said they described the car as best they could. Not very good, mind you. Described the. Um, person, the man driving it on his own, according to the witnesses the, Mrs. Roger and the door, they carried on going back to their digs and, they, and the car went off this way. The car, in other words, would have been going in the same direction as Jeanette had gone bike and the same direction as the girls. The girls were only just there as well. The girls were moving. They were moving slowly along reading the paper. According to Mrs. Rogers, the man in the car would have passed the two girls and then should have passed Jeanette Tate. But the girls didn't see the car, is that right? The girls were young girls on a nice summer's day, they were more interested in reading the paper and thinking about the day than there were any any as far as cars concerned, they didn't take any notice. Did no, I don't care he says. Mrs. Rogers was a reliable witness at the time.
1: Based on the memory of Mrs. Rogers and her daughter, a broader picture was now emerging about who was in the lane when Jeanette went missing. Let's go over it again. Mrs. Rogers and Gale said they saw a maroon-colored car. The vehicle was possibly a Triumph Herald or a 1300 and it was travelling towards the village. Both described the car and the driver, a young man with dark hair. It was last seen travelling towards the bridge, towards Aylesbury, towards Jeanette and her two friends. I've looked into the archives, and the initial account they gave to police was detailed, even describing the side on which the man parted his hair. So, here are the details from the Police Appeal of August 28th, 1978, nine days after Jeanette went missing. A photo fit was issued of a man, described as being aged 18 to 25, with thick, blackish hair cut short, possibly parted on the left, a pale complexion and thick, blackish eyebrows. He was wearing a light-coloured shirt with the sleeves rolled up and was of a tidy appearance the medium-sized saloon car he was driving is said to have been a deep maroon color it had a good shine and was well kept the lane was very narrow because the the, the hedges had overgrown here's roger busby again describing how the theory developed
2: it's only really possible to drive one Vehicle along it at a time, so there were very few passing places. The bicycle was on its side in the lane there, so any car coming up here after Jeanette had passed the girls would not have been able to pass the bicycle. To get to the to get to the location from the village end, it was impossible to turn round because there was no turning place there. So, what what could Possibly have happened is that a car had gone past. Jeanette had pulled over to let it pass. Then it had stopped, etc. Um, you could not.
1: You could not drive a car uh, past that cycle. Let's consider for a moment what Roger has just said, because it helps us to further understand why police considered the maroon car theory so credible. A motorist entering Withan Lane from the direction of Aylesbury. Would have encountered Jeanette coming towards them. Let's imagine an abduction takes place. Detectives believed it was highly unlikely that such a vehicle could then have turned around in the narrow lane and exited by the same way it came in. It made much more sense to speculate that a car had entered with lane from the opposite end, let's call it the Exeter end, and at some stage past Mrs Rogers, the two girls and Jeanette, travelling in the direction of Aylesbury, Such an explanation fitted with the account given by Mrs Rogers. When all the leads had been checked, when all movements accounted for and other vehicles eliminated, the man in the maroon car was the only known suspect to be in the right place at the right time. In this podcast, I'm focusing on the main line of inquiry which developed in the first ten days, the man in the maroon car. But it's important to remember that at this early stage of the investigation, nothing was being ruled out and the door-to-door inquiries and statement checks were continuing at pace. In fact, all other possible leads, rumours and pieces of information were being checked by the teams. But detailed as the account given by Mrs Rogers and her daughter was... ...there was a sense among the senior detectives... ...Eric Rundle, Don Crabbe and the rest... ...that they needed more. Because the initial appeal had thrown up no new credible leads. The time had come to try something different. It was a surprise to me when I started researching this case to find that hypnosis had played such a prominent part in the investigation. But it is clear from the people I've spoken to that at the time it was considered a viable option, a way of unlocking hidden, perhaps crucial memories. A television company,
2: I think it was tonight, uh, uh, agreed to uh, conduct a hypnosis session in London with a well-known hypnotist who'd obviously got a good track record. Um, We took uh, Mrs. Rogers and her daughter to London and uh, the hypnosis session took place and during it she was able to enhance the detail to a degree like the colour of the car, uh, more detail about it It was a shiny coloured car and she could also describe the driver to a degree. She also gave, um, uh, she and Gail both gave partial registration numbers Now, whether this was some kind of auto-suggestion remains to be seen, but the partial registration numbers were um, extensively run through the Police National Computer, which existed at the time, and uh, each variation on the number came up with a different kind of vehicle and uh, really was not traceable. So although it did enhance the, uh, the initial statements that they made to a degree, including an artist's impression of the person they caught a glimpse of driving the car, it didn't take it much
1: further. While detectives carried out their inquiries, a parallel search was taking place. Jeanette's family conducted daily expeditions of their own, often lasting long into the night and covering many miles around Aylesbury. John remembers spending much of the time in late August in something of a daze as the events in the village threatened to overwhelm him. Rising at dawn, he would visit the incident room for information, then return home to organise searches with his wife Violet and Sheila, Jeanette's mother. Setting out with a destination in mind, such as the airport or an area of woods on a map, they would simply depart in the morning and spend their time en route, picking up bits of litter, peering into hedgerows and stumbling over uneven terrain, looking for clues for their missing girl. They thought that if Jeanette had been abducted, she may have thrown something from the car to help them find her. In their desperation, they looked in vain for a trail they simply couldn't see.
3: I went all the way to Amsterdam. Went to Amsterdam, this guy comes on the phone to me, uses the road and said that he thought we'd seen Jeanette. He said that if we went there, he would show us where he'd seen this girl spent a week in Amsterdam looking for this young lady. We eventually found her, and it was an American girl, and older than Jeanette. Did
1: she look
3: yeah. anything like her? Not really, no. They wanted to be her, you know. We did to the street much I'm The we left the lights on for the entire house, and the only time... <laughs> We slept was when we lied down on the bed and had a bit of of sleep that night, but it wasn't very often to start well. First sleep I had had was in the middle of the field, when I collapsed on the grass.
1: As the investigation expanded, the only thing police knew with any certainty was that there had been no sign of Jeanette since she vanished. All searches of the immediate vicinity had been fruitless. There had been no ransom demands, as one might expect from a kidnapping, or communication from Jeanette that she had run away. So, whichever way police looked at it, the most likely explanation was that Jeanette had been abducted and with no clues at the scene, they would need the public's help to find her. And to do that, they would have to harness the power of the media. In the next episode, I'll look at how the press covered the story because that is what it had now become, an unfolding drama to be told to a captivated audience. We'll hear how Jeanette's disappearance made the national news and how police tried to send the message far and wide that Jeanette Tate was missing. The Disappearance of Jeanette Tate is a Devon Live production written and hosted by Paul Greaves, edited by John Bishop, with special thanks to Nick Irving and Roger Busby and Devon Live editor Rich Booth.